This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We're willing to bet the world's most perfect Pinot that you have at least one high achiever in your family that makes you feel like you're imperfect if you fail to level up. Well, as today's guest reveals, being surrounded by doers and go-getters can actually help us thrive. We'd love to welcome Carol Trembovolsky to the show today. Carol is no stranger to growing up around high achievers. His dad is a successful entrepreneur, his mum is a prominent pianist, and his brother is flourishing at Goldman Sachs. While it's normal to cave under pressure, Carol saw his high-achieving family as a challenge to raise the bar of success. And raise it, he did. This year, Carol was honoured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for his leadership position as COO at Behavox, an AI-driven data platform that transforms financial behaviours in the workplace. To date, Behavox has offices in New York, Singapore, London, and has raised over $2.1 million. I'm super excited to talk to Carol today about his upbringing in Belarus and his journey to New York City. Throughout his story, he always encourages us to learn from our failures and to focus on our strengths, which is something that we really admire about him. So for those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, to your Facebook story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that we know that you're listening in. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant Carol Trembovolsky. Carol, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, you know, you and I recently connected over LinkedIn. Um, and when I looked into you and the awesome work you're doing, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I do appreciate the invitation. I look forward to having this chat. Love it. Cool. So look, for those of us who don't know what it is that you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, so I am a, one, uh, I am a co-founder and a chief operating officer at a technology company called Behavox. So Behavox, uh, it's uh, the people analytics company. And what we do, we try to understand and quantify behaviors at the workplace. And what I mean by that, if you think about, say, your workplace or my workplace, it's actually highly digital. Right? So you, you talk to your clients via email, you talk to your colleagues on Slack. 
technology teams would use Jira and Bitbucket, all those tools, but end of the day, it's all digitized. Now, if it's digital, naturally it lends itself to analysis, and if you can analyze it, then you can quantify those behaviors, and importantly, you can then try to correlate those behaviors with outcomes. And then it becomes interesting because you can get very creative about that, uh, depending on what domain of expertise you're coming from. It can be compliance, it can be risk management, it can be HR, it can be culture, and the whole thing about hashtag me too, for example, was uh, very interesting for us, trying to be slightly more scientific about that, or you can try to make more money. Um, the reason uh, Behavox uh, is uh, quite uh, new and very timely is because uh, it's only recently when all this data uh, became digital and now workplace is completely digital. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's essentially what we're working on across the whole host of different domains. And uh, I've been uh, just historically responsible for many things as many other people you have spoken with from startups, starting from the uh, implementation management globally and now transferring or transitioning into the product management. I love it. And it's so funny when I looked into Behavox and what you guys do, it, it, you're so right when you say it's so topical. It's just, it's, it's what all companies now will be looking to, to kind of look at, okay, well, how can we analyze this data? That's all online now. So I find that really interesting. But before we dive deeper into your work, I want to start with a question that, that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yep. So, so I grew up uh, in, a, in a town called Minsk. I don't know whether you know where it is, but uh, just uh, to make sure we're on the same page, it's in Belarus. Uh, so uh, I grew up in uh, 1992, so it was just one year after the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, in some extent, I think it did shape my childhood memories because the country was uh, somewhat in shambles. And uh, you have this experience of looking at uh, how people are building stuff and how the country gradually, year after year, is becoming better and better. And right now, when I go back to Minsk, it's an amazing town. And uh, they even try to label it as a, a Silicon Valley of Eastern Europe. In terms of growing up, I think that I would probably say that I had two uh, important role models. Uh, that would be my parents and my brother. Uh, so, uh, interestingly, my, my dad, uh, trying, I guess, also to tie it back to Behavox, so my dad, uh, uh, he is a very successful entrepreneur and a businessman in Belarus. He is in payment businesses. So, essentially, his company provides all payment terminals across the whole country. So, it's what you would probably call mission-critical infrastructure. But, I guess, interestingly, he uh, started uh, by teaching in the university, uh, Slavic languages, and then he quit it. He went into uh, movie making, so he was a scriptwriter. And then in 1991, when this whole thing collapsed, he essentially said, well, uh, I will try to pursue uh, freedom. So I'll try to find uh, something that will make me free. And he thought that uh, business is going to be the right choice. Now, admittedly, uh, retrospectively, not necessarily, because it comes with a lot of uh, obligations. Uh, but it took him, uh, what now is 20, uh, 20, uh, more than 25 years uh, to build this company. Uh, and uh, it has been quite a journey. So if I'm trying to relate uh, to that and think uh, whether it had any impact on who I am, for sure. For sure. When you see how your dad had been building this company year over year and how, because uh, it was difficult, uh, and in the end now it's very profitable, uh, that gives you a great example. My mom uh, comes from a slightly different avenue of life. So she is uh, a prominent pianist, uh, one of the most, uh, most well-known pianists uh, in Belarus and uh, in Eastern Europe. 
and uh, I think uh, an example there was uh, uh, she is a person who found her calling very early on in life. Uh, I don't know whether you can uh, say the same about yourself, but I don't know many people who would say that since the age of five up until now, I've been doing only one thing and I absolutely loved it. Uh, so then you realize that uh, if, you, if you're lucky enough to find your passion, uh, it, uh, from a very pragmatic point of view, it gives you a very powerful source of energy. And if you're trying to build a business and you are able to find and bring these people together, this can be a very, very lethal weapon because uh, you know exactly what you're doing and you absolutely love it. And uh, you don't really feel tired or sick of, of your work. And that's one of the things about my parents. I have never heard them complaining or disliking in any way anything about their jobs, which is quite phenomenal given that I, okay, I'm probably not like uh, 55, but I've been around for more than 10 years. So, so that's kind of my parents. Um, and then you have my brother, uh, who is uh, elder than me by 10 years. Uh, and uh, so uh, Dima, he, he went to study in Moscow, uh, Moscow Institute of um, International Relations, uh, and then after a while, uh, he got into Goldman. Uh, and uh, in Goldman, he, he, he was very successful on the research side, uh, banking. Uh, and uh, that's actually how I met Erkin, uh, who is my partner, my mentor, and the CEO of Behavox, because they are the best friends. Uh, now, if you look at Dima and the progress of his career and also his passion, at least back in the day, topple capital markets and investment in general, uh, you're like, holy cow, I mean, I have to be at least as good as my brother. Uh, so if I'm, again, trying, going back to your question, uh, in what way it shaped me, well, it shaped me in a way that you, from a very early age, you want to prove to yourself and to the whole world that you are as good as your brother <laughs> and uh, that your dad uh, will be proud of you. Because uh, uh, the family, in general, are quite accustomed to success. Uh, so the, the bar was set very high, and uh, therefore, like, there isn't really a lot of room for error or failure from the very early age. Wow. And I think that's so interesting you put it that way around that's how your family shaped you and that your family is very, like, a successful family. You know, what did that ever, you know, make you feel totally stressed out and thinking, you know, how am I going to compete and how am I going to... Or did it motivate you? Like, I think that... Um, uh, so stress in general is not something that I'm particularly good at in <laughs> general. Uh, I am getting stressed more about personal things when it comes down to relationships with my girlfriend, for example. When it comes down to stress at work, look, I used to be a professional sportsman playing, uh, at, uh, playing volleyball at national and international levels. And uh, if there is something that we also do at Behavox, we, we love hiring people who used to do sport professionally or semi-professionally. Uh, because end of the day, uh, in sports, you don't really ring the bell. Uh, that ultimately comes down to it. Uh, so you don't ring the bell, uh, you uh, stand up to bullies, you fight, and then you do your best to win. If you don't win, okay, fair enough, uh, that's life, and then you move on. Uh, so I wouldn't say that I was stressed whether I always tried to uh, uh, set the bar even higher, uh, even though uh, the probability of failing would consequently be high as well, for sure. And I failed quite a few times. Uh, in the end, it, it worked out. Mm. 
I love that. And on the show, we talk a lot about failure and how that actually leads to success and how that leads to so many learning curve. So talk to us a little bit about one of your earliest failures, I guess you could say, whether it was at university. I saw that you studied at the University of Exeter. Uh, Exeter in the UK and then later at the Imperial College of London. You know, what was some of those early failures that you faced? That's an easy question. I have, I have just the right story for you because it was uh, such an epic failure. It's just impossible uh, to forget about it. So uh, I have to give you a little bit of background about how I got uh, into Exeter in the UK at first place because that wasn't the plan. That wasn't by design. Uh, so I by chance, got a scholarship from the University of Exeter and the UK government when I was at the very last grade of my high school. And it was it was interesting because it was only two years since I decided that I am a technical guy and I want to pursue my passion in physics. Before that, I was a history and literature guy. So anyway, so my dad said, look, you have no idea what you're doing. Why wouldn't you just go to this Exeter place and spend a year just figuring out what you actually want to do in life. I said, oh, okay, fine, that sounds good. Uh, I'll go there and uh, surely it's gonna work out somehow. So I go to Exeter and uh, in there, uh, I suddenly realize uh, being quite an ambitious guy, that's not good enough for me. Uh, and I uh, learned uh, about uh, the fact that Ivy League unis in the United States, they have this thing called uh, need-based scholarship. And I was, for some reason, naive enough to think that uh, they'll just uh, give it to me. Uh, I, I, I should just uh, spend enough time working and studying and preparing, and then uh, uh, they will give me the scholarship, and I'm going to be studying in MIT. That was the ultimate dream of a boy from Belarus. So my dad said, uh, fine, look, it's very expensive. If you get a scholarship, uh, then off you go. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be very difficult for the family to afford it. Uh, I spent literally a year uh, just working day in, day out, preparing for that. Admittedly, my English back then was uh, somewhat subpar, uh, so it wasn't easy. And uh, the more difficult part was that I received a no uh, from nine out of ten unis that I applied to. And the tenth one uh, said, yes, but uh, we won't give you scholarship because uh, the evidence is insufficient. Now, the learning lesson here, I think, uh, is that uh, A... Uh, it's okay to fail because uh, end of the day, uh, like if you do business, and uh, I'm sure you know that, uh, there will be up and downs all the time. And if we were to give up every single day because of failures, uh, we wouldn't get very far. But more importantly, I think it's about realizing whether uh, you're actually optimizing for the right outcome and whether it's actually the right path. Uh, in the end, physics is not my strongest suit, for sure. That's not what I'm really good at. And when you go into business, you realize that you compete with a lot of smart kids out there and you have spoken with more uh, of them than I have ever met. Uh, and uh, you have to focus on things that you're good at because you just don't have enough time. Uh, you can learn for sure and that's highly encouraged, but you have to play to your advantages and your strengths. And physics wasn't one of them. Uh, and uh, in the end, I pursued my passion in mathematics and uh, that defined my career in a big way. Mm-hmm. I could not agree more around sticking with what you're good at and actually learning how to excel even further in that. And I just, I, it's just so evident. And this is why on the show, we talk a lot about passion. We talk a lot about finding your purpose or doing what you actually love to do. Because as you said, if you do that, and you'll be extraordinary at it and you can't, no one can really compete with you. I find it fascinating. So talk to us a little bit about 
your mathematics. So after you did your mathematics at Exeter, you obviously went on to do computer science. And then I was confused about where that, how you went from London to New York and this opportunity came about with Behavox. Fill in those gaps for us. Uh, so uh, uh, after Exeter, I made the conscious decision to study computer science. The reason for that was I was getting into too much detail is because after my first year in the uni, I, I was lucky to spend uh, three or even four months with my friends. We were building an IT startup that uh, essentially focused on parsing uh, data from social media. And uh, we would package it up uh, for uh, the purpose of risk scoring and we would sell it to banks. So then when I did that, I realized that uh, it's absolutely impossible to do anything in IT and technology if you don't really have a background in IT. It's just going to be difficult. So therefore, the choice of going into Imperial College and uh, and doing a uh, master's in computer science. Now, while I was doing uh, my master's, uh, closer to the end of the year, I was about to start writing my thesis. And uh, then uh, we went for a lunch with Erkin. So Erkin is the CEO uh, and the founder of Behavox. Uh, the reason I know him is because at the beginning of my academic year at Imperial, I had to find someone who would be my guarantor for student accommodation. So I asked my brother, and uh, uh, Erkin used to work at Goldman Sachs, uh, at the early stage of his career, and uh, Dima said, "Look, uh, I know this guy Erkin. He's a great guy. He's my best friend. Uh, he would be more than well, uh, more than happy to help you." So I met Erkin, and then uh, uh, fast forwarding, uh, we uh, met for lunch, and that was the day when he quit GLG Partners. Now, for those who doesn't who don't know, GLG uh, is probably one of the most prestigious hedge funds out there. And Erkin uh, had a stellar career at uh, GLG. Uh, my brother describes him back then, actually. He said, Erkin is a rising star of uh, London's uh, hedge funds because uh, uh, only after two years, uh, he was promoted to partnerships and uh, he was responsible for a $2 billion financial fund. Uh, so I met him and uh, I'll have to speak a little bit about this guy because he shaped my career and my life in a big way. Uh, I was blown away just by the sheer brain power he had because uh, if you have uh, if, if you get a chance to speak with him you'll realize that his mental capacity is just very high so uh, he said look I, I've, I quit GLG I want to pursue uh, my own thing uh, I want to set up my own shop uh, and uh, why wouldn't you join me so I wouldn't necessarily say that I uh, I knew what I'm getting into because I didn't have experience, a lot of experience in capital markets. But uh, look, end of the day, I have a firm belief that success of the business, 60, 70% is determined by the quality of the team. End of the day, there are people who have to deliver the vision. And if your vision is great or it's not great, uh, there are still people who have to materialize it and implement it. And uh, I saw the guy who was definitely up for a task and uh, he chose kind of business that not many people would want to go into because it's hard. It's not very difficult to build an app, a mobile app that you know you can just distribute it using Apple Store. Uh, it is a little bit more difficult to go into B2B, but the contract value will be say 20, 30K. But when you go into business where you analyze mission critical data for systemically important financial institutions across the globe, uh, that uh, does take some guts. Uh, so, so that's actually how it started. And he just said, look, pff, we have this task called diarization, uh, which is essentially a task of separating speakers in a phone recording. So you can say that this is speaker one, this is speaker two. And I said, I don't I have masters in machine learning. I can do that. And that's how it all started. 
wow. It's so funny because sometimes you you hear these stories and it's like, oh, I knew this person's friend. of And sometimes you think they're just, oh, it's like, as if that actually happened. But no, like it actually does. It is about who you know and it is about putting your hand up when an opportunity comes. Okay, wow. So what was his decision? To, where did New York come into play? Like how did that, how did you make that transition? So uh, I, I started my career at Behavox. There was a small shop, so there wasn't really a title per se. So, but I was, uh, I was an office manager. I was a QA engineer. I had a lot of different hats. At some point, I got into the role of an implementation engineer and over time grew in ranks uh, to the role of uh, chief operating officer. And uh, then at a certain stage in the company, we realized that, and I guess Brexit played a certain role in there as well, But if you want to do business in financial services, then New York is definitely a place to be. You don't really have a choice, to be completely honest with you. Uh, And on top of that, the quality of talent in North America, uh, the reason I say North America also is because we have a massive R&D hub uh, in Montreal and uh, we are batting uh, big time in Canada. Uh, But the quality of talent here in general is very high. So we set up an office uh, in New York and... uh, uh, when you set up an office, uh, you got to ship someone from the core team to set up the operations and to get things going. That was reason number one. Reason number two was that our client number two was uh, based in the U.S. And in general, looking at client traction, although we work with global financial institutions, very often we start our engagement in New York. So it made a lot of sense for me being on the front uh, office side of our business to be located here rather than London. Is he still in London or did you? Uh, so no, I moved permanently to New York. Yeah. Uh, Erkin moved permanently together with yeah. his family to New York. Wow. Uh, so we're trying to consolidate our operations and at the moment uh, um, our tech uh, people are, are spread across London and Canada, Montreal, and the business is based in New York. Mm. I find it fascinating understanding global businesses and d- like your this business model where it's like across different continents, you know, absolutely fascinates me. What has been one of your the biggest challenges of working across continents? I, mean, I guess the naive answer would be time zones. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the, so the problem is that if the, the way it typically works is that as you grow your business operations at a certain point in time, you make a very conscious decision that you have enough man, manpower and resources to open an office, say, in Singapore, Hong Kong, or Tokyo, or Melbourne, right? Or Melbourne. Or Melbourne, yeah. (laughs) Then uh, then you can uh, staff uh, the office, and then everything uh, goes smoothly. Now, uh, with us, it's a little bit different, because if uh, you get to work, so imagine you receive an indication of interest from a global investment bank, and then you start the POC project, and you win the POC project, and then you win the contract, and unfortunately... They have global operations, so you don't really have a choice. Uh, You have to support them globally, so you have to move faster than other companies typically do, so you have to go and set up an office, in our case, in Singapore. But right now, for example, we, out of the blue, a little bit for me, we started engaging a lot of business in Japan. So I don't know whether we will have... Uh, 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 you know, fully fledged proper office in Tokyo, but whether we have a representative there for sure, because Japan is, uh, I guess you've been there, it's a very particular culture and uh, they have very strong notion and opinion on respect. Uh, 
And if you don't have presence in Japan, you won't be able to do business with Japanese. It is impossible. It's so interesting understanding even the cultural differences between, you know, how different countries operate and how the companies in those countries operate. I spent quite a bit of time in Shanghai and it's just a totally different custom and and how you deal with the Chinese people and and, and understanding them and being respectful and all of that kind of jazz. What do you think that coming from a different cultural background has helped you in some way deal with these different cultural challenges? Uh, difficult to say because I think that at the, at the beginning of my academic uh, path or my academic degree, I struggled. Uh, bear in mind that I, I come from a country that was close. The USSR was obviously uh, close, the Iron Curtain. And then uh, was I was growing up in school, I had uh, zero engagement with any international kids. Now, thank God my, my parents uh, were able to afford sending me abroad uh, for summer schools uh, in the UK. But that's definitely not enough, spending two weeks in a foreign country uh, versus, say, studying at an international school. So took a little bit of time. I think uh, my cultural background uh, uh, just helped me a lot to with... Um, um, I think it's, it's, it's more about interacting with people and be very direct. Sometimes it can be disadvantageous, admittedly. So uh, it, it was a problem in the UK because they perceive this sometimes as rude. But when it comes down to business and uh, working and aligning yourself with your colleagues, it helps because you're trying to filter out everything that you don't see as substance and focus on things that actually matter. Uh, and at the end of the day, that you're trying to optimize for efficiency. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's so funny that you say about that rude aspect, because I find that in the States, at least in New York, it's, the first thing I think is that everyone's quite a lot more sharp than they are in Australia, let's say. But I kind of love that about this city. But it's so funny because, you know, Australians were typically a bit more laid back, you know, a bit more relaxed or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, when you've got a job to get done, you know, it's just it's, it's better to be exactly. more direct. Um, I love that. Okay, this is super interesting conversation. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about the progression of Behavox. So we've kind of dived into where you guys are at now, but at the start it was just like you two trying to figure it out. You know, how did you grow over the last couple of years? So uh, there are a couple of important milestones. I don't think it makes a lot of sense to probably tell you the whole story, but so let's focus on things uh, that I consider milestones. So uh, in um, 2014-15, Erkin uh, got connected with two other co-founders of Behavox on the technical front, uh, so that that are uh, the guys who run our analytics and technology teams. And uh, they are the guys who made uh, the vision a reality because uh, they came uh, from an enterprise-grade engineering type of background. They both worked at Sun Microsystems for many years, and then they continued their careers at Oracle when Sun got acquired. So, so that was actually a game changer because it is not very difficult to come up with this whole notion and a sales pitch about uh, digital workplace, transforming behaviors. Try to implement it. Try to ingest, say, 15 million emails on a daily basis, somehow store it. And by the way, you have to do it for five years because that's going to be your regulatory retention requirement. Oh, and on top of that, you also have to ingest voice data and that's going to be about two terabytes of phone calls, one million phone calls on a daily basis. 
So when you have to deal with that much data, uh, that is difficult. So you definitely require a level of technical talent that would be able to implement it and bring it into reality. Now, the second problem is that storing and I guess processing this data is not good enough. That's why if you look at a stock price of a company called Cloudera, uh, it is not going very well for them and the stock price has been going down for many months. The reason for that is because they only tell you like, look, we can store data, we can process data, but the analytics, the business outcomes are on you, Mr. Client. This is where uh, uh, Mr. or Dr. Glassman, uh, who is in charge of our analytics uh, team, uh, came into play because you have to put in place a lot of sophisticated classifiers that would be able to extract all those valuable signals that then you can take and correlate to business outcomes. So that was very important, right? Now, next step, I think, was uh, signing up our first client that was a UK-based hedge fund, Marshall Waste. And uh, the reason it was interesting is because Marshall Waste in the world of hedge funds has a reputation of being very, very technologically advanced. So those guys uh, run uh, a lot of things in-house. They don't like to outsource. And the quality of their technical talent is very, very high. So uh, the guy who became our evangelist, a uh, guy called Conor Kiernan, uh, the CTO, he... Uh, he definitely understood the long-term vision and uh, he helped us a lot to shape the product. And this is uh, how the journey began because as you know, from zero to one, signing the first client is very, very difficult, especially if you're trying to sell to financial institutions with their standards of security and compliance. So the barrier for entry is actually very, very high. So that was another one. And then uh, I think it progressed. And uh, for me personally, uh, in a way, uh, the next uh, steps would be like, we started signing up very large private equity shop, started signing up banks. So our clientele, so, so to say, became very diverse. We, are not only, we were not only focused on compliance, we started going into front office, we started looking at how you can quantify culture, as I mentioned, or how you can uh, understand where people are stressed or overstressed at work, uh, and then uh, you start going into corporates. So I think this, uh, this whole vision of building a behavioral operating system and trying to transform behaviors at works becomes reality only when you go outside of financial services, because the world is not only Citigroup and JP Morgan. There are millions of other companies out there. And I uh, think for us, for the next few years, as we grow the business, I'm hopefully going to make it work, we'll be implementing more and more use cases for other companies on the main street outside of financial services. Wow, I love it. The vision is so strong. What you guys are doing is epic. And I really appreciate you diving deep into this for me. I, I could speak with you forever, Carol, but I'm conscious of time. I just firstly want to, as we come to the close of today's episode, I firstly just want to acknowledge you for the awesome work you're doing, for always putting yourself out there, for putting your hand up, for making things happen. And it's, you know, it's no wonder that you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list and among many other publications. And it, it just, it's very evident and we really appreciate you for that. Thank you for your kind words. Appreciate it. Of course. So the final question is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Peers Project. And that is, what is the value 
of pursuing what you're most passionate about? This is an interesting question. Um, the way I would answer it is as follows. Um, at the age of 80 or 85 or 90, uh, so many years from now, hopefully, uh, at the verge of your death, you will have to look back and ask yourself a question whether it all was worth it and whether you've uh, ultimately made the difference and also whether it was fun. And uh, that's, I think, what it's all about. Uh, really, end of the day, it's all about uh, whether you enjoyed living your life to the fullest and whether you were able to make a tangible impact, not a superficial one, because end of the day, you will have to lie to yourself rather to the world outside. You have to be confident that what you have done actually was useful, not only to you, but to other people as well. I love it. Carol, thank you so much. We have had an absolute blast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Of course. Where can people learn more about you and your work? I think uh, they should go to our website. And also we have a regular publication called Trader Magazine. So this is an actual uh, physical magazine that we distribute to our clients and we also put it in a digital format. And of course, we're going to be running more and more events in New York City, in Singapore, and hopefully very soon in Melbourne. Woo! <laughs> we'll definitely be at that one. Awesome. Well, we've had a blast. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.